Hello, this is Shane Claiborne and Tony Campolo. The name of the show is Across the Pond because we're over here on the east coast of the U.S., right outside of Philadelphia, recording the show. Uh, we're on every week at this time, and we uh, uh, like talking about a, a Christianity that engages the world that we live in uh, so uh, that our faith doesn't just become a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world that we live in. Uh, and we get to have a lot of great guests on the show. I'm really excited, Tony, about yeah. our guest this week. Um, yeah. She's an uh, incredible friend of mine. She's also uh, been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. She's one of the most courageous people I've ever met. She's really humble, so she hates that I'm saying all this. Uh, I'm our sure. guest is Kathy Kelly, yeah. and she's the founder of Voices in the Wilderness and Voices for Creative Nonviolence. She led and helped organize uh, the Iraq peace team that I was in uh, Iraq with in 2003. So we were there with an amazing group of people. Many of them were clergy and people of faith, doctors, uh, veterans, and to be a presence uh, against the war and sanctions. Yeah. She's organized dozens and dozens of delegations in Iraq and around the world. And we got to go to Kabul and spend a few days with some other wonderful young people that we'll hear about. But first, uh, welcome, Kathy. Thanks for joining us. Yes, welcome, welcome. And may I say, before she starts her thing, is that, uh, you know, we promote Red Letter Christianity. If you're not uh, acquainted with the Red Letter Christians movement, go to our website, redletterchristians.org. We broadcast from Eastern University and Cabrini University out in St. David's, Pennsylvania. Eastern University is where I've been forever and where Shane graduated, uh, and uh, we make it a center for social activism. Uh, but go ahead, you take it now. Yeah, thanks, Kathy, for joining us. Well, thank you very much, both of you. It's a privilege to be on your radio podcast. What a nice word. So, <laughs> so you know, folks a lot of times ask, uh, or I hear this a lot, Kathy, you, you may too, which, which is, well, all the talk of peace is uh, wonderful, but what do you do with, uh, uh, you know, in a world of ISIS and, you know, extremism and all this? And, uh, you know, like sometimes we're asking a question that, we we aren't kind of starting from the beginning, and that's one of the things I uh, have learned from working alongside you. When we were in Iraq, um, I remember one of the Iraqi men that we were with saying, um, well, you know Iraq has some weapons because you have the receipts from them um, yeah. in the U.S. You know, the Bell helicopters that were used came from the U.S. The 150 countries have had arms contracts with the U.S., so we've we've... Uh, kind of uh, helped uh, create the environment of, of violence that we're we're now living in. So tell tell a little bit more about that, Kathy, because you you've you've kind of uh, seen that firsthand in, in some of the most troubled places. Well, you know, I think the the words straight from Jesus, "Love your enemies." When you start down that path, you find out, well, actually, maybe, you know, we really aren't facing um, people that are hateful and that are extremely dangerous. Maybe there's a lot more room for conversation about whom it is we're speaking with. And I think that um, it certainly is true that, I mean, you know, Henry Kissinger had said during the long years of the Iran-Iraq war, 
uh, things couldn't be better. They're 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 killing each other and using our weapons to do so. So yes, yes, the United States has supplied weaponry to conflicts all around the globe, and and uh, when the United States has also used economic warfare against another country, and it wasn't just the United States. I mean, those economic sanctions against Iraq included, you know, the United Nations ag- agreeing to it. Well, that, that pushed people and pushed people into situations of despair. And, um, you know, but by the time you and I were over there, Shane, um, so many people were at the end of their tether, you know, their their economy was in a shambles. The, the hundreds of thousands of children had died in gruesome deaths. I and mean, I remember a young nurse from the UK in a ward in Baghdad saying, uh, I think I understand it's a death row for infants, isn't it? Mm. That, you know, imagine if in our society we had even a fraction of the the bombing and the economic sanctions and then, uh, you know, the, the eventual crippling of the country through invasion. I mean, you know, people would be filled mm. with anger and rage. And yet, you know, re- remarkably, uh, we experienced incredible hospitality while we were in Iraq, even during the war, in the 2003 shock and awe warfare. Yeah, and and you, um, w- when you and I were there, I mean, one of the things that struck me was the, the love and hospitality of the Iraqi people and how often we heard, we love the American people, but we are concerned about the American government. And one of the Iraqis said, we have two enemies, your government and our government. And the people just continue to suffer. Um, and, and, you know, I think as I was over there, we saw exactly what that looked like. You know, as we're living through the bombing, I can remember, you know, all the sites that we visited um, as the bombs were killing civilians. We went to uh, um, uh, the, the shelter that was uh, filled with women and children when it was hit with two smart bombs and, and one of these blasts. And I mean, just one thing after another. And I, I can remember one U.S. soldier who actually said to me, I went to Iraq because I wanted to get rid of terrorism and I discovered that we were helping fuel it and create it. Um, and that sounds pretty extreme, but it, it, you start to see that as, as, as we're looking at what has happened there, um, uh, it, 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 that really is kind of what we're seeing. And you saw that really at this secret prison that... Um, what secret prison? Not, not just, uh, there's the Abu Ghraib, you know, the really high profile one, but um, Kathy went to visit another one that uh, Mr. al-Baghdadi that uh, was, was yeah. uh, you know, recently um, killed was, was found, uh, spent some time there. So tell us a little bit about that visit, Kathy, and what... Uh, we know about that prison now. Mm, well, thanks for asking about that, Shane. You know, um, it was a really unusual circumstance. I think probably some of your listeners know about the Christian Peacemaker teams. Yes. And they were there um, in Baghdad right through the Shakhanoa bombing. And then they did something so wise. Um, they just had the Christians to figure out it's important to stand outside the prisons. Mm. and see who is being taken into prison in the aftermath of the shock and awe bombing and invasion. And they got to know people that were, you know, waiting for their loved ones or trying to find out about their loved ones, and they kept a database. 
I mean, at that time, I wasn't savvy enough to really understand the value of a spreadsheet, but a couple of these young Christian peacemaker mm. people really understood that, and so they had one of the best databases going in terms of tracking the capture tag numbers and the prison numbers assigned for people that were rounded up in large, large numbers. And well, what did you out, find the about these people? On hyper- I'm sorry? What did you find out about these people that were being put in the prison? Mm-hmm. Well, for instance, there was a big dormitory for students on Haifa Street, and it was t- the tallest building on that street. So the Marines, when they invaded, wanted that building so they could see better. Mm. And so they just went floor to floor, and they rounded up people. And if you were what they called a TCN, a third country national, you automatically went to a prison. Wow. Well, Saddam Hussein was a ruthless dictator, but he liked to be liked in other countries. So he invited young people from other countries to come and study in Baghdad. And Baghdad had a very good medical school and engineering school um, before the economic sanctions began to so cripple the economy. And in Gaza, for instance, there certainly wasn't any medical school for young people to go to. So there were students from Palestine and from Gaza who were living in that building, and they were herded into mm-hmm. a prison in the far, far south of Iraq. Shane, Shane referred to it as a secret prison. Well, I don't know, Shane, if we'd really say it was secret. It's just who's going to pay attention to anything? Right, south right. Of Basra. So these young people were there, and then after several months, two of them were released, and they came to us and they said, please, please, can you go and find out about our friends? We're frantic for them. They're still there. They might never get out because you just have to wait your turn to go in front of a three-person tribunal. So anyway, because of the Christian Peacemaker team, we found the capture tag numbers for two of their friends and then several others. And we also learned that Major Garrity, who was from the United States, a young accountant from Nashville, Tennessee, who signed up because of her feeling of patriotism. She's in charge of this tent prison. There aren't buildings, right? They're just tents. And when we got down there and, uh, you know, amazingly, we're able to actually make this visit, we realized that the young ones who were still in the prison directly corroborated with no prompting from us what we had heard from the ones who'd gotten out, that they were humiliated, they were forlorn. They had to hold up their bowls and beg for food or um, say, I love George Bush or bark like dogs. They were paraded naked in front of United States military women to go and take their showers. They're sleeping on the ground, afraid of desert scorpions. There were 13-year-olds amongst them, and they'd say to the U.S. soldiers, but these kids are, you know, at risk of being abused or molested by other prisoners, and they, they were just laughed off. So they had grievances, and they, their families had no idea where they were. They had no contact with their families. So this was the prison to which Ali Baghdadi was taken for some of the nine-month period that he was in prison, and the rest of it was spent in Abu Ghraib. Mm. And, you know, as we get older, I know a younger generation doesn't know much about Abu Ghraib, but there were terrible abuses inflicted on people there. So how did ISIS begin? Mm. ISIS began with the recruitment of people who felt uh, so uh, angry, uh, powerless, enraged, and I think we have to try to understand the people we believe to be our enemies. And then, you know, in the United States, we have the ringing call of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King at the height of the Vietnam War, who said we have to learn to love the Viet Cong. 
Mm, mm. So we're, we got a, uh, uh, this is a pure fire with Kathy Kelly uh, as our guest. And we're, we're going to uh, dive right back into it in a minute. But for those of you that might just be joining us, this is Shane Claiborne and Tony Campolo. Our show is Across the Pond. Uh, and we, on this show, we like talking about what we call red letter Christianity, because the old Bibles have the words of Jesus uh, highlighted in red. And, and we like asking the question, what if Jesus really meant the stuff he said? One of the things that Jesus said is that we're to love our enemies, as Kathy Kelly has reminded us today. And, and uh, a lot of us get to a point where you just say, I think it's impossible to love our enemies and simultaneously prepare to kill them. That maybe when Jesus said, love our enemies, he meant we shouldn't kill them. And we think of the world that we live in, um, which, you know, the message of loving our enemies might seem pretty radical. And people go, yeah, but what, you know, what about this world of ISIS and things like that? And you think, well, the world that Jesus lived in was also a, a very violent world. Jesus was born as a refugee in the middle of a Herod's, uh, Herod's genocide as he's killing the children in the land, separating kids from their families. And we think of Jesus's death on the cross, the martyrs that lost their lives, and they, they did it with... Um, with love on their lips, even for those who are hurting them, they, they really understood that we can live in a violent world without mirroring the violence that is imposed on us. And there's no one that in my life that I can think that's embodied that uh, as courageously as our guest, uh, Kathy Kelly, who um, at some point you just say, what if we had as much courage for peace as people have for war? And, 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 and that's she, what she's, she's really taught me. She's a co-coordinator for this organization called Voices for Creative Nonviolence. Uh, let me repeat that, Voices for Creative Nonviolence. And Kathy, if people want to connect with you and with that movement, uh, how, how do they do that? Is there a website that they should go to? Uh, could you speak to that just for a moment? Sure, we do have a website, um, VCNV. It's the acronym for Voices for Creative Nonviolence. And, you know, our mantra of sorts has been where you stand determines what you see. Mm. And, and I think, as Shane said, you know, in, in, in the life of Jesus, we continually see him going to hear from the people who are considered the, the least. <laughs> Um, likely to be guiding other people. Mm. And I think it's when we try really, really hard to hear from the voices of people bearing the brunt of war, afflicted by war, um, it's there that we can learn a lot about not only the consequences of wars, but how to turn around towards something different. And, mm. um, you know, I lately have been thinking about the country of Yemen a great deal because they're on the brink of famine, uh, weapons have been pouring into Saudi Arabia and other countries that are part of a coalition that has been relentlessly bombing people in Yemen. And um, it's true, the Houthis are also now using a more and more sophisticated weaponry. But, you know, it, there's one small village that I think of a lot is called Arhab. And, and people there were facing the horrors of drought also. And so they kept trying to dig for a weld cooperatively. They managed to purchase a rig. It was a rickety old rig. And, and it looked like, you know what, this isn't going to work. We're, we haven't hit water yet. And then one night, it was like Eureka, they hit water. And the whole village 
celebrated. And mm. I suppose it was mostly the men stayed up late at night and they were dancing and singing. They hit water. And then that same celebration became the target for a Saudi attack using one of those weapons Shane mentioned, you know, the very uh, horrific paveway missiles that can just go right into a group of people and shred them apart. Oh, mm. And that happened. And then the next morning when people went out to look for their loved ones or to see what had happened or if they hadn't been able to grab curious children back before they ran to the site, the weapon planes came back and attacked a second time. And so, you know, the people in the village were doing what we should be doing, trying to cope with our shortages of water and clean air mm. and the, you know, catastrophes of climate change. And instead, we keep pouring our resources into the capacity to, to kill and destroy and create ever greater hatred. Mm. So, you know, as you've said so many times, if we would listen to the words of Jesus as though, you know, he really meant them and we could really mean them. What a different orientation we'd have. Yeah, you know, and it, it, go ahead. I was going to say, uh, you know, you and I talk a lot about uh, nonviolence and uh, we say all the right things, but here's a woman that went to prison uh, in 2004. Could you tell us a little about what happened and uh, your opposition to n nuclear uh, weapons and, and the whole thing that happened uh, down there at Fort Benning, uh, which is a military training school. Could you tell us what happened and why it happened? Mm, well, you know, that military training school is still to this day training people, um, primarily from Central and South America, who go back to their own countries and the tactics that they've been trained to use are terrible things, disappearances, torture, um, uh, death squads, and sometimes out-and-out -out massacres. Uh, you can see the people indicted and convicted of these crimes listed on the rolls of graduates of that particular school. So there uh, was a steady, steady growth of a movement to shut down that particular school. And I had been part of a fast in the very beginning of that effort, and um, we fasted. I went for 28 days on water only, and that sort of uh, help deepen my sense of yearning for a different way. Anyway, coming back from the war in Iraq, I felt like, you know, I, I want to be part of that community again that's trying so hard to put an end to war. So I crossed the line, um, and I was sentenced to three months in prison. And, Tony, if you don't mind my saying, uh, you know, I spent a year in maximum security prison for planting corn on nuclear missile silo sites in the Midwest when I was a good deal younger. And, you know, I don't think that was a crime. I think it was a good idea. And actually, you know, going to prison gave me an education that was as important as, you know, when I learned to read at age five, because there's no other way to, as I suppose intensely begin to understand the prison industrial complex, which is often a war against the poor, at least in the United States, as well as by being uh, yourself a prisoner. So I, I don't regret that experience. My most recent time in prison was in 2015 uh, for trying to bring a loaf of bread to the commander of a U.S. military base that was operating drones. And, you know, all across the United Kingdom, we've also felt the solidarity of people who have um, protested drone warfare, said fly kites, not drones, uh, and uh, also the campaign against the arms trade. So there's a certain solidarity in saying, you know, even if it means 
giving up a you know a, a fraction of our liberty if we can have a role in trying to liberate the world from being shackled to war making and weapon making uh, this is a good a good opportunity I, I like how uh, Martin Luther King said uh, you know when he first went to jail he was troubled but then he looked at history and saw what good company he had there and <laughs> you're a part of that cloud of witnesses of holy troublemakers and uh, you know I think of John Lewis too as he said that's why we can smile in our mug shots when we go to jail because we know that we're on the right side of history. And one of the things I love about you, Kathy, is um, we've just got like five minutes left. We got to have you back. But you're a woman that's also full of hope and joy. We had those experiences in the middle of, uh, you know, the the bombing and war when we were there in Baghdad. I think of uh, that birthday party uh, that we we threw. Maybe, you know, you you tell that story so well. Tell a little bit about that, but I want you to also talk a, just in the last few minutes about the young people um, in in Kabul and and because from Baghdad to Afghanistan, like we've seen these young people with better dreams for the world. So uh, mm-hmm. take us there with the hope as we uh, have the last few minutes together. We know so much money in technology is devoted to surveillance these days, but. Actually, the young people we know in Afghanistan, I think they do the best surveillance I've ever encountered. They go up the mountainsides on foot, you know, sometimes in the icy winter, there's not even a road. And they go to the, I can best describe them as hovels, the the places that are so desperate, often inhabited by women and children with no income earners. And it's cold in Afghanistan in the winter. And they, they do surveys. That's the surveillance they do. They bring a notebook and they ask questions like, how often does your family eat beans? What's your source for water? How do you pay for rent? And if they learn that the people rely on the the 8 and 10-year-olds for income, that those are the workers, then that family survey goes to the top of the list. And then they try to figure out how can they help the family. And one of the things is to do a school, a street kids school, and the kids can come and learn as, uh, you know, their guests and, you know, they're, they're tutored and also become part of a community. And, and it makes a world of difference. I've watched now um, one group of 100 kids go through that school over a three-year process, and now a new mm. group of 100 have come in. And then they also have enabled thousands of families to have warmth by giving them very, very heavy blankets that were sewn by widows who got at least a meager income to sew these big, heavy blankets. So so that kind of surveillance I, I believe in. And I think, Shane, um, if you recall... We, at one point, had experienced such intensity of bombing in Baghdad that it didn't seem to really matter. Are you inside or are you outside? And so we threw that birthday party, and it was kind of audacious. You know, I can remember getting... A birthday um, party for who and what? Yeah, there's like a a, a young girl. Her her name was Amal, I think, right, Kathy? She was turning 13 years old, and so we threw her a birthday party. Go ahead. In the midst of the bombing. Yeah. Well... Yeah, it's during the bombing, and and Shane walked on his hands as a clown. I didn't know you could do that. And then the kids played Duck, Duck, Goose, and honest to goodness, having those kids run and laugh, and, you know, after weeks of being cooped up and terrified, it was just glorious. But then, I don't know if you remember, Shane, there was a big explosion, and we suddenly realized we didn't know where Mustafa was. And the mother, Karima, 
she had this look of panic on her face and it was I don't think she even knew she was screaming, Wayne Mustafa, Wayne Mustafa. And I think you found him. Mm-hmm. He'd gone closer to the river and maybe he shouldn't have. But anyway, he came back into the circle. And I'll never forget the change of expression on Karima's face. Pure relief. You know, a mother's relief. Her son is with her. And then there was another explosion and the look on her face was pure contempt for war. Mm. And hey, our time is up, you know. Need, you know, the love, the welcoming of children, and the contempt for war. Yeah. All in that mother's face. And as we, as we were, uh, f- we continued the birthday party, and Tony, as we were closing, we asked them all, turning 13 years old, what do you want? And she said, peace. And then with the smirk of a 13-year-old, she said, but if one night when no one was in my high school, if one of the bombs hit it and we didn't have to go to school for a long time, that would be great, you know? So there you we're go. out of time, but like uh, I, I think of the, the young people in Afghanistan, the young people in, uh, that we met in Iraq and around the world that are rising up against the climate crisis and calling for a world uh, with less violence. And Kathy Kelly has been on the ground in so many of these places. She's been our guest this week. Please go support the incredible work of Voices for Creative Nonviolence. And uh, Kathy Kelly, uh, you can read and follow her on all the social media. We're out of time, but thanks for joining us. This is Shane Claiborne and Tony Campolo uh, across the pond. Go to our website. Redletterchristians.org. Check out what we're about. And uh, remember Eastern University. We promote our school because uh, that's important to us as well. So thank you again, Kathy, for being a guest. You're a brilliant interviewee. Uh, You do the job well. I'm sure our listeners were fascinated. Thank you for being on the show, and thank you for listening.